Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Coastline. It's uh, great to see you. Uh, my name's Sean Hurley, one of the pastors here. I am uh, sipping hot tea the whole time here and sucking on throat lozenges. Uh, I got sick last weekend when I was on a three-night Ensenada cruise through Carnival. And can I just tell you, if you are looking for a luxurious vacation, have you considered an interior cabin on the second floor of, with four other people traveling to the beautiful city of Ensenada? So it, I was there for a bachelor party. I thought I was too old for bachelor parties. I definitely am too old for bachelor parties. Uh, but my sister's getting married, and so we went off and spent the weekend there. Uh, but I'm just kind of coming back a little bit, so uh, hoping I could make it through a sermon before uh, I lose my voice. That's my prayer for this morning. So while we're on this cruise, they have evenings there uh, by the pool where you can watch movies. And they showed a different movie every night. One of the nights, it was Top Gun. And so I sat down to watch Top Gun. They did Top Gun 1 the first night, and then the second night they did Maverick. And so I'm watching them and enjoying them. And again, I've seen Top Gun, the first one, 700 times is probably about accurate. And so I'm just very familiar with it. And as I was watching it, I started to pick up on the same theme that ran through both movies. And this, this is not a deeply insightful observation. You know this as well. But in both movies, they do a lot of this sort of thing about the hero struggling failing, and then ultimately returning back to action better for kind of what has happened. So you see this in the first movie of Top Gun with Maverick when suddenly he has the panic attack while he's flying. He enters into the kind of that flat spin again that was just like when he lost Goose. And when it happens the second time, he exits the battle and is panicking because he just can't do that again. And the whole story turns when he moves past his fear and re-engages in the battle and the hero returns and suddenly they kind of move on victoriously. Same thing happens in the second one, but this time it's with Rooster. It happens with him where suddenly he has a panic attack and he flees, and now Maverick is the one who's abandoned, and it's only at the last minute when Rooster suddenly re-engages back into the battle that they suddenly are able to take out, I think it's the missile base, and then they crash, and then they steal a plane, and they run through the snow. So good. So... This is not something that's just unique to Top Gun movies. This is a thing that's unique to most of the movies that involve a kind of heroic character in them. Uh, you see this with Aragorn when he disappears and returns with the ghost army in Return of the King. You see this with Thor when he's off getting Stormbreaker made and he suddenly comes back to destroy the Chitauri. You see this with Aslan after the stone table. He comes back and destroys the White Queen. So this is a thing that happens in movies. It happens in stories. The heroes return where suddenly they re-engage with the story. So we're going to have that moment in the book of Esther today, except it's just a little bit unique. So far in the book of Esther, we have not seen God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God of Israel at all. He's been completely absent in the story. He's never appeared. And that has been at times confusing to people who have studied the Bible and have tried to engage with it. In fact, when they were ultimately putting it together and, and you had people who were critical about whether Esther should even be included since Yahweh is never mentioned. How do you have a book of the Bible where God doesn't appear? During the Reformation, Martin Luther hated the book of Esther because God's never mentioned in it. 
It's a strange thing to have a book in your holy texture, holy scripture, that is actually not, doesn't mention God. And the point that we've been trying to pull out through this series is to show you where he is in the story. Kind of behind the scenes, somewhat between the words, somewhat at a distance from kind of what we see, but still moving, still acting, still kind of the ultimate cause behind all things, and holding it all together. Today... We're going to be in Esther 8, and we're going to bring actually the kind of story of Esther to a close. We're going to have another week next week on Esther, but next week we're going to really focus on how on earth does the sovereignty and power of God coexist with our own free will. That's one of the, been, one of the big messages that we've had in Esther, is that God is sovereign in all things and through all things, above all things, but how does that still work in a world where Xerxes can summon women and have them at his pleasure, right? How do those two things coexist? That's next week, but today we're going to look at the end of kind of this crisis, this execution order to murder all of the Jews in the kingdom, and we're going to see God show up at the end, but in a very Esther sort of way. Uh, If you have been following the series and enjoying the series, I really want to invite you to check out the podcast that we do. Uh, It is excellent. Hunter does a fantastic job. And some of the um, weeks that we've had here, I want to say some of the weeks, like there's been some bad weeks. All of the weeks in the podcast have been incredible and deepening and a great way to go deeper if you've enjoyed the story. But for today, we're going to be in Esther chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to work through a few selected passages, and I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I'm just so grateful for this book, for for what it's meant to me. Um, In moments when I really needed to kind of see where you were in my life and what you're doing in my life, Esther became this uh, the story to hold on to. And so, Lord, just thank you that you've given it to us. Thank you for both the courage that she and Mordecai show, uh, which encourages us to be faithful and to be courageous as well. And Lord, today as we move past kind of the, the story and as we apply it to our lives, would, would your word touch our hearts? Lord, we know that your word is brought to us by your spirit. And Lord, you speak to the depths of us as the words kind of read. So Lord, would you preach today? Would you be speaking to our hearts? Would you comfort us in our pain? Would you help us see where you are in the places of confusion? And God, would you give us the courage um, to live as lives that are just fully committed to you? Would we allow you to lead and shape who we are um, through the presence of Jesus in it? So we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So all along in this story, we've been kind of setting up a little bit about where we've been. So if you you are here for your first time or if you've missed parts of the series, I'm just going to quickly run through the book of Esther so you know a little bit where we're at. The book of Esther really takes off when we are introduced into a conflict between two men. One of them is a man named Mordecai. We are told that he is a Jew and a son of Saul. Okay, so Saul was like his great ancestor. The second one is a man named Haman. We're told that he is an Amalekite and that his father or ancestor is a man named Agag. Now, when we hear that, we kind of skip past that because it feels a little bit meaningless to us in our modern lives. But to the original audience, that would have told them a ton about who these people are. These were two nations, the Amalekites and the Israelites, who were deep and bitter enemies. These are two families, the family of Saul, the family of Agag, who had deep hatred for one another. And then we know that also these two men 
have deep personal bitterness and enmity towards one another as well. They work together in the same palace for the same king, Xerxes, but there's tension that appears in the relationship, and ultimately, that tension explodes when Haman gets a promotion that Mordecai really thought he should have had. And when Mordecai doesn't receive the promotion, what he ends up doing is deciding that he's going to repeatedly and publicly shame Haman every chance that he can get. When every other person bows, he is the one person who refuses to bow and makes sure that everybody knows it because he so disregards the sort of man and nationality and person that Haman is. Now when Haman sees that Mordecai won't bow, he not only draws from his own personal anger, but he pulls from all that cultural anger and historical anger and that family anger, and he decides that it's not enough to get revenge on Mordecai for what he's done, that instead he wants to get revenge on every Jew, and decides that this, in this moment, he's going to put out an edict that on one year from then, that everybody in Persia must take up arms against the Jews and to kill them all. That is the driving kind of plot of the book of Esther. What Haman doesn't know is that the queen is Jewish, and that she's been concealing it all along for fear of her own life and for what it might cost her if she becomes known as a Jew. And so she is in this position of having power, but not a ton of power. Uh, there's a rabbi named Rabbi David Foreman, who I've quoted him a great deal in this sermon series. He's been very helpful. What he says is that Esther is put in a spot of needing to perform, in a sense, martial arts against the people that are against her. She is the weaker person, and she must use the weight and the leverage and the momentum of her enemies against themselves to save the Jewish people. The way he describes it is this, is that she has to take the ambition of Haman and use that to throw that against Xerxes, and then to take the jealousy of Xerxes and to throw that against Haman, and hoping that the king and Haman will somehow destroy this edict and allow her to kind of pass through it and to save her people. What she ends up doing to make this kind of play happen is she does it through these feasts, two different feasts where she invites Haman to come and dine with her and the king. That makes Haman feel very special, and it makes Xerxes feel very threatened. And in the end, the plan works brilliantly. Xerxes becomes angry when he finds out what Haman has done, and he has, has Haman killed on the very device that he'd built to have Mordecai killed upon. And so it seems like everything's gone perfectly. Everything that Esther set out to do, she has done. She has had her enemy killed. He is destroyed. She uses feasts to do so in a way that, ha that Xerxes used, used feasts to build alliances. She uses feasts to destroy them. And yet, in this moment that would seem her greatest moment of victory, Esther breaks down and weeps. I think this is really interesting because we are not told that Esther weeps when she's taken into the harem, although she probably did. But the scripture doesn't seem like they need to tell us that moment. It doesn't tell us that she weeps when Mordecai weeps, when the edict goes out. She's, in fact, fairly stoic in that moment. Instead, she weeps at the moment of greatest victory, which is a pretty good sign that we're missing something. There's something happening here that we're not seeing and that is worthy of studying. So if you have your Bibles, Esther 1 Verse 1 through 4. That same day, King Xerxes 
He gave Esther the estate of Haman. Haman has just been killed, and now Esther is receiving all that he once owned, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. And Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. You see, what Esther is coming to realize is that even though Haman is dead, the edict still stands. She had hoped to take the fury of Xerxes and direct that against Haman and to have Haman be destroyed by it and the edict as well. And she has been half successful. She has gotten Xerxes to kill Haman, but it says in verse 10 of chapter 7 that when they impaled Haman on the pole, the king's fury subsided. So she had hoped to take that fury and direct it at Haman and at the edict, and that fury hits Haman, but then it stops. You see, Xerxes isn't really bothered by the fact that all of the Jews in his kingdom are going to be killed. He's worried or he's upset that Haman has lied to him. He is upset that Haman has made advances towards his wife, but he doesn't really care about the thousands upon thousands of Jews who are going to die. And now in this moment, Esther has no more cards left to play. She has been successful beyond expectations, but it's still not enough. Her people are still going to die, and she is going to be the last Jew left in Persia and the entire empire. She has, in a sense, destroyed Haman, but it's like from the grave, his, he reaches out beyond it, and he is still going to get his revenge, and all of her people and all of her family, and everybody who remains in this huge empire which goes down to Ethiopia and as far as India, every Jew in this reach is going to die. Now, do you remember when Mordecai originally heard this command, that this edict had gone out to kill the Jews? He went to Esther and he begged her, you must go to the king and you have to speak on behalf of your people. And Esther says, you don't understand Nobody can approach the king unless they are summoned by him. To do so risks your very life. She is terrified to approach Xerxes when he is sitting there upon his throne. Garrick told us last week that there was a guard with an axe that stood behind the throne of Xerxes who is there ready to behead anybody who approached the throne unsummoned. The first time Esther did it, she was terrified, and Xerxes spared her life. But this time, she approaches Xerxes, and she's not afraid anymore. In fact, it says that she dives at the feet of Xerxes, grabs onto his ankles, and weeps and sobs there. There's no more fear of Xerxes because there's nothing worse that can happen to her. The worst thing has already happened. She cannot save her people. There is nothing that can be done. And if Xerxes kills her, well, maybe that's even better than being the last Jew alive there. It's terrible and it's terrifying for her. And in the moment, Xerxes does raise his scepter again. He must have never seen anybody make this kind of emotional plea to him in his life, and he spares her life. And when he spares her life and when he extends the scepter, Esther rises, but it's not the same old Esther. It is now a totally different woman who stands before him. When we first met Esther, she has a totally different name. She's named Hadessa. 
She is a Jewish teenage girl who is being collected by Xerxes to come be one of his sexual playthings that he's going to have in his kingdom as he finds a new queen. And in order for her to live through that experience, Mordecai says, you have to conceal your identity. You can tell no one that you are a Jew. It is going to make you vulnerable in ways that you cannot possibly understand. So she takes a new name, Esther, a very Persian name after the Persian goddess Ishtar. Okay? That's the name that she chooses, the goddess of love and war, which is certainly kind of who Esther is throughout the entire story. Well, one who's a lover and also one who brings war. And what ends up happening is that in this moment, Hadessa has to die so that Esther can live. Hadessa has to be hidden in the background. She has to be concealed that she cannot let anybody know that she's a Jew. And from this moment on, she is willing to be whatever Xerxes needs her to be in order to survive. Uh, I've referred to her in the past as she's willing to become Mother Persia. She's willing to talk to Xerxes about the great empire that they're going to create together. She's going to be the symbol of beauty and femininity, and whatever Xerxes needs her to be, she's willing to do, and it seems like they have somewhat of an even functioning marriage in it. And yet now, suddenly, this sort of schism in her personality, this burying of Hadassah, it's no longer going to work. She can no longer be, used to be Hadessa and now be Esther. Somehow these two things have to come together. And we see it in Esther 8, 5 through 6. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews and all the king's provinces. Man, you can see that she is buttering up Xerxes. If it pleases the king, if he regards him as favor, if he thinks it's the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me again, this is very much Esther, the queen that we are seeing. But look at what she says next. For how can I bear to see the disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And there's Hadessa. This schism between these two people, this hiding of one part of her identity, it's not going to work for any, her any longer. And chances are, it never really did. And suddenly she is put in the spot where she cannot conceal her faith. She cannot hide her Jewish identity and what it means. And it has to come right alongside of her Persian role and of her, king, of her husband who's the king and has a role as queen. And they have to exist side by side there. She is still going to be Mother Persia, but in a sense, she's also going to be Mother Israel right now, speaking on behalf of her people. You have to know this is a hugely risky thing that she does. She had become a good queen by becoming all things Persia, but now she's tying herself to the Jewish people. She's reminding him of her identity, and she's identifying herself with the family, that these people, these Jews, are her brothers and sisters. And you have to know, that is as risky of a thing as Vashti ever did. It is far more rebellious than refusing to take off your clothes at a dinner party. What she's doing is saying, I'm not entirely with you, Xerxes, because I'm always tied to my people and to my Jewish lineage. And Xerxes hears her, and what he does is he gives her something, but he doesn't give her everything. Look at Esther 8, 7 through 8. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, 
Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So he gives her the signet ring, right? This kind of ring that is used to seal and to sign every important document. This is the same ring that the edict to kill the Jews was sealed with, okay? It's kind of funny how often Xerxes is giving away this ring. It's almost as if a president is like, sure, walk into the Oval Office and enjoy the red phone. Right, it's just like, why do you keep giving away your position and the symbol of authority and all of the power to anyone and everyone? It's a very strange way that he does business, but it's kind of who he is. And when he gives her the ring, it appears that now she has the power to change the edict that has been given, but she doesn't. He makes this statement at the end, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. It seems to be a statement about the ring's power, but it really, and pay attention here, it really is a symbol of the ring's limitations. Because what he's telling her is that this ring can change anything except for the edict of Haman. Because that was written and sealed with this ring. And once it is sealed and written with this ring, it is unchangeable. Regardless of what you do, there will be an attack on the Jews. It cannot be stopped, and there is nothing that you or I can do to make it uh, cease from happening. Essentially, what Xerxes does is say, here is the gun, but you got no bullets. I'm going to give you what you want, but you cannot stop this thing from happening. But Mordecai, who is there in the room, sees a way. This is out of nine. It, I'm sorry, Esther 8, verse 9. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivian. They all wrote out Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in the own script of their language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed their dispatch with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted carrier and rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all of the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so the Jews would be ready on the day to avenge themselves on their enemies." The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. I think it's fascinating when we look at this here to see the incredible relationship between Mordecai and Esther. There is really nothing like it in the rest of Scripture. Together, they're able to do incredible things for the Jewish people and through the power of God. Together, they find a way for Esther to survive the harem. Together they find a way for Esther to ascend to the throne. 
Together they call on the Jewish people to fast and to pray. They give spiritual leadership. Together they destroy Haman, who appeared unstoppable. And now they write this edict in this moment to go ahead and empower the Jewish people to defend themselves. They work together as a man and as a woman, as a father and as a daughter, but as equal partners in bringing about God's will and commands here for this. They work in different spheres. Esther is working the king and making sure that he will do what needs to be done. And Mordecai now is the one who's writing the policy, making sure that it can be done there in the kingdom. We see them sharpen one another, challenge one another, even rebuke one another at the times. And yet, they always honor one another and they listen to one another. They are a picture of the powerful ways that God can work through men and women when they work in partnership and in complement of one another in the kingdom. When Mordecai takes the ring, there's this new edict that's given, but it's different than Mordecai's. I'm gonna put up a slide so you can see them side by side. Here's the edict of Haman. The edict was to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. That's from Esther 3.13. Now look at the edict that Mordecai writes. It grants the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children. They're not the same edict. The edict that Haman gives out is to commit genocide, is to wipe out the Jewish people. But the edict that Mordecai gives is to protect themselves from anybody who would attack. He is not committing the same sort of genocide that, that Haman wants. He's simply giving them the right to defend themselves when the battle, battle comes. Now what I think is fascinating is that if I was somebody in some far-flung region of the empire, and I received these two edicts, I would have been so confused. So which one is it? Am I supposed to kill the Jews, or am I supposed to allow the Jews to kill other people? I mean, the whole day sounds like, it's like The Purge, that movie, right? Like a day of violence. That is literally what they're giving them, a day of violence for them to wipe out their enemies. And if you are some far-flung governor, you must have wondered, who am I supposed to side with? Because if you choose wrong, the king might come down upon you. It seems like this terrifying moment and the pressure of the moment must have felt immense. But what we see in the text is that nobody's actually confused. Everybody knows exactly what this means. And it means this, is that Yahweh has returned to fight for his people. That is what this means. There's a story from the book of Exodus. The Jewish people were slaves. And Yahweh commanded Pharaoh to let them go, and eventually Pharaoh does. And when Pharaoh lets them go, they enter into the desert, and then Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his military against them. And they're pinned between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. And there in Exodus, I think it's 14, 14, or it's 12, 12, I always mix it up. Uh, God tells them that they do not need to do anything but wait, that God will fight for them. They need only to be still. And in that moment, Yahweh parts the Red Sea, spares his people and destroys the people of uh, the army of Egypt. This became a lesson for anybody who ever interacted with Israel. God fights for them. If you 
fight Israel, you're going to fight their God. And when you fight their God, suddenly the unpredictable is going to happen. The walls of your city explode. Your people are struck with madness, and they're going to attack themselves. The miraculous will happen amongst you. Angelic beings show up, terrifying you. When you fight Israel, you fight their God, and everybody knew this. But there came a time when Israel stopped following God, and God said, you've broken your covenant. You've broken your relationship with me. And so he says, I'm no longer going to fight for you. And that's why they're in Persia. It's because they were defeated by their enemies because they had been unfaithful to God. And while they're in Persia, they are lost. And they're wondering, where is Yahweh and why is he so silent? The reason why Yahweh is silent throughout this book is because he had been silent for years for them. They did not know what he was doing or what he was about. But now that this edict has come, people suddenly realize that Yahweh has returned because there was this edict to kill every Jew. And now there's a new one that says that they get to kill everybody who opposes them. And that just doesn't happen unless Yahweh is involved. And so everybody comes to believe. The next part of the story, I'm just going to do this quickly because I'm going to run out of time. Mordecai. He throws, I'm going to read it because the Bible's great. I'm just going to say it better than I will. <laughs> Woe be it to me if I think that my words are going to be better than the Bible's. <laughs> when Mordecai left the king's presence, this is in 8.15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness amongst the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. It's a crazy story. So what ends up happening? Mordecai goes on a parade in his royal robes and throws this sort of worship scene there throughout the whole city. The battle hasn't even been fought yet. Who has a victory parade before the battle? Only someone who is confident of its outcome because he knows that God is already with him and he sees that God has already been moving and the result is just a formality because if God decides it's going to be so, it will be so. And why do the nations convert before the battle has ever happened? Because they know that Yahweh has re-entered the story as well. And if God is not only going to reverse the edict, but if he's going to come back to his people, then he is different than any other God that they worship or know. He is a God who is truly compassionate and truly forgiving, who loves his people who were unfaithful to them. And in that way, he is different and mighty and powerful, and they convert before the battles every fought, ever fought. It's because Yahweh has returned, and he is no longer being silent. On that day of the battle, that happens later in chapter 9, in the city of, in the city of Susa, 800 enemies of the Jews are killed, and the ten sons of Haman. And in the Persian Empire, 75,000 enemies of the Jews are killed. It's astounding. Now let's apply this to our lives. We'll talk about how this gets us through a busy week of driving kids to soccer practice. First there's this. There is nothing so terrifying that is happening in your life that God cannot reverse it and change it and transform it and 
turn it to your good. This happens again and again in the book of Esther. We see that Mordecai is in ashes and in sackcloth at one point, and later on he ends up in robes. The person who builds the gallows becomes the person who hangs from them. The man who is forgotten and passed over for a promotion is the one who becomes the second in command of the kingdom. And the people who are threatened become a people who are victorious. This is so hard for us to believe when we are underneath the boot of life and when our enemies are winning and when we are profoundly suffering. We tend to believe that it's always going to be this way. And it's never going to get better. I can say from my own personal experience that in moments of deep suffering, my biggest areas of concern was that the suffering was going to change me in a way that I would never be the same again. That Sean was dying. And whoever came out of this other, the, side of, the other side of this would be far worse than the person who went into it. I was being warped or ruined by the pain that I was experiencing. But if we take the book of Esther seriously, if we're really going to believe in the providence of God, that, then it means that there is nothing in our lives that is so painful, so damaging, so warping, so hurtful that God cannot redeem it and use it. And I want you to hear that word, reverse it, in your life. The Bible has this great way of saying it out of the book of Psalms, is that Yahweh is a God who turns our mourning into dancing. But wouldn't you love that for that to be true, to actually experience that in your life? That the places of deepest mourning could become places of dancing again by the powerful work of God in your life. I'll give you an example of how I'm seeing this play out in my life right now. So this last weekend, there was a big dance party that happened. Some of you were there. A lot of coastline people showed up. I didn't, because I was on a four-night Ensenada cruise in an interior cabin on the second floor with four other men, one of which was 6'5", 280. It's like having a fifth guy in the room. So as I'm traveling on the night of this party, I begin to receive videos sent to me again and again and again, and it's of Garrick dancing. Specifically, it's Garrick to dancing to Baby Got Back. Now, I just want you to take that thought in and just visualize that for a moment. Just kind of, this is a 49 and three quarters year old man, Caucasian, dancing to Baby Got Back. Can you see it? Yeah, we'll post it on our story on, on uh, Coastline later on. You have to know there's nothing that Garrick loves more than dancing. There's nothing. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that Garrick loves more than dancing. And so seeing this was like, yeah, I know that guy. That's exactly who he is. But I began to reflect just on the past couple of years. Garrick shared a little bit about this last week. Um, but man, there, we had some rough years. <laughs> It's really rough years, and there's years with a lot of sadness and a lot of pain and a lot of feeling like we were breaking and didn't know how we'd be put back together again. And seeing Garrick at a party with his friends and with a lot of coastline people dancing and having so much fun, I just brought that verse, he's turned our mourning into dancing again. And I knew that in that moment, there was nothing that Garrett could have experienced that would have been so meaningful about God's redemption and pleasure and love for him than to see Garrett dancing with his new church. Nothing. 
trust me. God's going to show up. God's going to show up. God's going to show up. And I'll be like, I don't want to hear it. I'm crying all night. I don't want to hear it. And yet I've experienced it to be true. And so if you can keep that picture in your mind of Garrett dancing, he can turn your morning into dancing again. The second thing is that God is so faithful to us. Unendingly, unceasingly faithful to us. And he asks for us to join him in a deep relationship with him and to be faithful back. You know, throughout the book of Esther, we watch her wrestle with her identity. Is she Hadessa? Is she Esther? We watch her try to figure out if she's a Persian queen or a Jew. And this whole thing that she does is unsustainable for her. She ultimately has to choose where her allegiance lies. And in that moment when she falls at Xerxes' feet, she makes her choice. She is going to be a Jew first, and the queen of Persia, and Xerxes' wife, second. We have no idea how costly that decision was for her. It's interesting. We have all of these histories of the Persian Empire. And when we study them, we never find a queen named Esther. That's made some people think maybe this is a fictional story. Maybe it didn't actually happen. But there's all these other clues, including the dates and the festivals that come out of this, that would be very strange if it's a fictional story. What's more likely is that Esther was the queen of Persia, just not for a very long time. She was a queen of Persia for a moment such as this. And Xerxes, in his pleasure, brought her for a moment, and God designed for her to be there for that moment. But chances are she passed out of that queenship quickly because the next king is a man named Artaxerxes, and that is not her son. That's another queen's son. So this whole thing that she does, it's not without significant cost even for her. And I think it's worthy of us to pause and consider her life and the cause that she paid and the decisions that she made and consider how we construct our own identities. When I was a youth pastor, I would always talk to kids and say, are you the same person at church as you are at school? Always trying to get kids to bring those two identities together. And I think that's still a relevant question for all of us. Who are you really? Who are you? I can imagine that there's a work you, a home you, a friends you, an internet you, a church you, with your parents you, and with the different sort of identities that we have, they're almost like they're constructed on a mobile. And it spins throughout life, and depending on the context that we're in, a different sort of version of us comes out who speaks, acts, and uh, maybe even believes a little bit differently. My biggest concern for all of us is that Christianity would just be one kind of hanging thing on the wheel. That would be a part of our identity, but never really the whole. That part of our lives would be devoted to Jesus, but there'd be whole other parts of our life that would be untouched by Jesus, where our Christianity would exist within a very small sphere, but it actually doesn't touch any other place. And what we see, I think, in the person of Esther is that this kind of fragmented personality, it just doesn't work. It's not going to work for you. It didn't work for her. And ultimately, it's not even what God asked of us. There's this big teaching that Jesus does where he says that anybody who would follow me or anybody who, does, who loves their mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He's not telling us to hate our parents. We know even on the cross, Jesus is caring for his mother, making sure that she is cared for when he dies. He desperately loves his parents. But rather, 
He wants to make sure that our love of God is the most defining aspect of all of us, that it is the arms of the mobile instead of one pocket hanging. So my question for you is, does Jesus have a part of your life or does he have influence over the whole thing? And I can tell you, I don't even know what it means for Jesus to have influence over the whole thing of your life. I'm sure you don't either. I was talking with Andrew yesterday. We were talking about what does it mean for me to be a Christian at work? Look, that's a hard question to ask. But you know what? There's an answer for you that's better than anything I can give you, and it's that seek God. Ask him, Lord Jesus, how do I be a Christian in this context? And then follow what he says. Do what he prompts. Live into the wisdom. And you can ask him that in every context. Jesus, what does it mean for me to be like you here? Not with me telling you how to do, but you seeking God's will and asking those questions in your life. I want to bring it home. If the book of Esther is really about the partnership of Esther and Mordecai, why on earth is the book not named Esther and Mordecai? Why is it just named Esther? I think part of it comes back to a question that we raised at the very beginning of the series. Who is the person in power in the story? It believes like it's going to be Xerxes in the beginning. Then it appears like it's going to be Haman. But really, in the end, it is the most powerless person that God ends up using, Esther, to kind of further the story. And I think that's the hopeful part for all of us, is that God's power is exhibited always through weakness. It is always through humility. It is never through powerful uh, leaders. It's always God working through all of our brokenness. And if you ever feel like you are too young or too old or just a school teacher or just stuck in a bureaucracy, that there isn't a place for you to actually let God work, consider the story of Esther and consider what God has done and know that he is the person in power, that Jesus is the one upon the throne still, and that his power is looking to work through you in every part of your life. Let me pray. Lord, Lord, I truly, more than being impressed by the book of Esther or loving the history of it, Lord, I truly desire for every person to be asking you, God, show me how my faith can live in these parts of our lives. Lord, would you give us the courage to ask? Would you give us the sensitive heart to hear? And would you give us the courage to try? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can we stand together?